0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the growing popularity of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. His famous name is helping him gain some traction among the electorate, but he also embraces some fringe ideas. Later, you are what you eat, and if you eat a lot of processed food, it could be doing a number on your overall health. So should processed food makers be held responsible for that? And finally, check your savings and try to figure out how much you'll need in case of an emergency. Could you cover an emergency without going into debt? But we begin with college sports. (laughs) College football kickoff is just two weeks away, and that's one of the biggest money makers for many public universities, college athletics, especially football. The athletic departments generate billions of dollars in revenue every year, with student-athletes getting considerably less than the schools and the investors. Now, earlier this summer, the White House hosted the first College Athlete Day, celebrating men's and women's NCAA championship teams from the past season. Logan Eggleston is National Volleyball Player of the Year, and she addressed the crowd of 47 teams representing 19 sports across all three NCAA divisions. The
2: diversity we see here today reflects American society, and the qualities that we have portrayed as student-athletes this year are important values that we, as a country, must continue to exhibit every single day, such as commitment, communication, trust, and acceptance.
1: But here's an idea, private equity to help student-athletes get the education and opportunities they're promised. Let's get into this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Minter. Adam, how much money are schools
3: making off of student-athletes? They're making a lot of money. Um, The best numbers that we have uh, come from just before the pandemic, which really gutted uh, athletics budgets. And it was $15.8 billion in revenues that went to Division I sports. So it's extraordinary. And more than half of that money came from basketball and football.
1: I would think, yeah, basketball and football are the big money makers for any public university. But don't these student athletes now get more money through the the name image likeness, the
3: NIH? L deals that they get. Well, that's the interesting thing is, you know, in the last couple of years, the courts have allowed students to do just what you're talking about. They can market themselves. They can go to the local car dealership and say, "Hey, pay me X amount of dollars, and I'll do a commercial uh, for your car dealership." The problem is, is that most student athletes don't get the chance to do that. Um, You know, it's a very small percentage of those who do mostly in, again, football and basketball. Um, So most athletes are not paid. And it's kind of a problem in the sense that you you have these really fast expanding revenues, um, but they're just not being shared equally. And on top of it, as these revenues expand, as the business of college sports expands, the demands on these student athletes are growing. You know, in the last few weeks, uh, we've seen several uh, college con conferences their teams merge um, in these multi multi multi-billion dollar deals we've seen the you know the dismantling of the Pac-12 Well, what that's going to mean is students who played for say uh, Oregon are now going to be asked to travel to uh, you know the eastern time zone um, maybe several times in a season is that going to leave them time to do their homework you know and it sounds you know so ridiculous homework multi-billion dollar media rights fees uh, but they're now uh, expected to coexist and it's going To get harder.
1: I actually wanted to get into that with you because I was watching all of these moves as as they're actually coming to fruition. Some of these things had been announced a year, year and a half ago, and now it's happening. Like this, I'm a huge college football fan, so just bear with me. This season of college football is going to be the last of its kind after all of these moves. And there's also the, the conventional wisdom that we're going to narrow things down to just like two, maybe three divisions in the whole country, which is a little bit sad because it's all based on money, not necessarily what's best for the student athlete or what's best for the sport. How can all of this, the moves and the money and the machinations
3: be part of that larger issue of making the student athlete whole? Yeah, well, that's that's the the big question. And, and I think at some point you're going to have to see these media rights holders, you know, whether it's the networks or the streaming services and, um, potentially private investors, because as I wrote this past week, private investors, private equity are increasingly looking at investing into college sports, and in particular college football and basketball, they're going to have to say, hey, we're investing in a certain kind of brand. And that brand is student athletes. You know, when Fox or CBS or NBC buy rights to the Big Ten or the SEC, they are not buying rights to semi professional football. They are, in a sense, buying what college football means, which is regional rivalries. You know, Minnesota versus Wisconsin. I mean, I'm, I'm from Minnesota and Minnesota versus Florida State doesn't get me as excited. It's right. not as personal as, you know, Minnesota going down to Camp Randall and playing Wisconsin amidst that sea of red. It's qualitatively different and as this money alters that takes away these rivalries and takes away you know, that ethos of the student-athlete, it hurts the brand and it becomes a poorer investment. So what I'd argue is that it's in the interest of these rights holders, in the interest of private equity, to go to the conferences and say, wait a second, you know, yes, we want a piece of this, but we also want to limit the amount of time that these students are spending on practice and they're actually going to have more time devoted to homework. And there's ways of doing that. There's been talk of, you know, limiting 20 hours to athletic, uh, 20 hours to athletic-related activities, limit travel, and ultimately give those students a little bit more security, guaranteed five-year scholarships instead of you know, renewing scholarships on a year-by-year basis. And those things will recenter the athlete at the heart of college sports instead of making the media rights and, and the needs of the conferences and the athletic departments at the center. So I think those are the kinds of things that private equity and outside media holders can, can do to help change the situation.
1: You and I both know that college football particularly has been a moneymaker for decades. That's what the SEC's entire business model is based upon. So uh, if you have a private equity, uh, somebody who is able to insert some more private money into it, would they actually have enough pull? How much cash would that
3: take? Well, let's, let's talk about the, the school that's actually looking at doing it. I mean, this uh, past week, Sportico uh, reported that Florida State has hired J.P. Morgan to explore outside investors, private investors, private money to come in. What does Florida State want to do with that money? Well, Florida State is currently a member of the ACC, and the ACC is currently paying each of its member schools about $40 million dollars per year from a media rights, from the media rights that the ACC has. $40 million a year sounds like a lot of money for an athletic program, but, uh, you know, the, the new big 10 deal, um, is going to be paying out 80 to a hundred million dollars per school in a few years. So Florida state is saying, Hey, Wait a second. We're undervalued here. We're a big brand name in college football. We want out of the ACC and potentially to go somewhere else. You know, the rumors are the SEC. Who knows? So, but to get out of the ACC, they need to pay reportedly around $120 million. So enter private equity. We'll buy that out. Uh, but in exchange for that, we're getting a piece of your new media stream, your new media rights stream. And so um, if they're buying them out, that's that's leverage, in a sense, uh, over the program to expect certain things, at least at Florida State.
1: Do you see this as inevitable? Are they going to have to make these types of changes to make the student-athlete the center of attention? They have to do something if they are going to succeed. You you spoke very eloquently and very clearly about the brand. I could not agree with you more. Spoiling yeah. the brand is throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now you've got, like, minor league NFL. That's not yeah. fun. So right. and Because the, the loyalty that you might feel as a former student of that school or some Somebody who grew up in that region as you did and as as I did with the SEC, the the part of that you love is the love of the game and, and that they do right. it because they love the game. So do they have to go that
3: direction if they're going to save this? I think they do. I think they do. I mean, if you look at what's going on in Congress and in the states, California in particular, they are very aggressively moving towards, in several bills, uh, turning athletes into professionals um, looking at making them employees of the universities cutting them in on revenue sharing and to my mind especially California they they had they got they got a bill through the California legislature this year that would give football players and other athletes in revenue generating sports, which is essentially football and basketball, a cut of the revenues. Um, That changes the complexion of college sports entirely. Um, You know, there's lots of discussion about whether they would then be employees at the universities and what that would mean. But if something isn't done to compensate these student athletes in different ways and to recenter them as student athletes. I think inevitably you're going to see Congress and the states step in and say, look, they're generating all this money for football programs in the Carolinas and in, you know, uh, Louisiana and in Minnesota. They should be compensated accordingly. And, And I think that'd be a tragedy because I think you would you would then really be undercutting the case for that revenue as well.
1: This has been really fascinating and it's interesting to watch especially as kickoff is just a couple weeks away. So thank you for taking the time with us.
3: Thanks, Amy.
1: Bloomberg Opinion columnist Adam Mentor, who covers Asia, technology and the environment, and is now expanding that coverage to the business of sports. Now, coming up, we look at the growing popularity of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and what's his appeal besides his famous name. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're
1: listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. For years, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., with his familiar name, has been relegated to the sidelines of the country's national discourse in part because of his association with the anti-vaccine movement and French theories about the dangers of Wi-Fi. But Kennedy, who has been practicing environmental law, is now starting to appeal to a wider audience after he announced his challenge to President Biden in the 2024 presidential race. I think
0: I know more about how to fix regulatory agencies than any other politician in this country because I've spent 40 years selling them.
1: Well, let's talk about Kennedy, his audience and his arguments with Bloomberg opinion columnist Faye Flam. Faye, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. How is Kennedy suddenly gaining this wider appeal?
4: Well, I think a lot of it has to do with this paranoid mindset that is extremely popular in the the uh, general public right now, that people are paranoid about pollution and they're paranoid about whether government agencies can do enough to stop pollution. They're paranoid about big pharma, and they're paranoid about whether the FDA is really doing a good job of regulating big pharma. And there's a legitimate side to that complaint.
1: There are institutions in this country that are traditionally these mainstream sort of uh, stables that we normally would be trusting. Those are the ones that would normally have the American trust. Is it kind of their fault? Did they drop the ball somewhere?
4: A little bit. I mean, you look at the opioid epidemic, and you think, "Well, how how did that happen?" You know, people had to let that happen. The regulatory uh, agencies let us down, and there have been other drugs, Vioxx, that were dangerous that shouldn't have come on the market. So the you know big pharma doesn't have a perfect record. At the same time. You know, they, so it's rational to be concerned, and it's rational to be concerned about uh, regulators who are um, hoping for, uh, you know, lucrative jobs with the companies that they're regulating after they retire. Um, what you know, but when it it sort of veers into paranoia when you start assuming that everything is dangerous and everything shouldn't be on the market, and that every product, no matter how life-saving and valuable, should be you know should be viewed with paranoia.
1: Now, you say in your column that outrage is Kennedy's main weapon and political tool. What do you mean?
4: Well, you know, there's a a risk communication consultant uh, named Peter Sandman, who I I talk to a lot, who's given me a lot of interesting insights about the pandemic. And he talks about how the perception of risk is really uh, a combination of real risk as, uh, you know, that that we have evidence for and this outrage factor. And so the outrage factor can often have to do with whether somebody powerful is at fault, you know, more to do with blame than with actual uh, risk of
1: harm. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flam about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and what he does bring or doesn't to the national discourse. Faye, what did you learn in your research about Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? And did anything surprise you?
4: Not really. I mean, I think um, I listened to the whole three hours on Joe Rogan, and he sort of, you know, it was quite a a long conversation that goes through where he'll start with something that is a legitimate problem, uh, lead contamination in our environment, mercury contamination in our environment. And then he'll segue into mercury that had been used as a preservative in childhood vaccines that's no longer used, and then segue into this sort of general distrust of vaccines. So he manages to kind of start from something that is a real concern to something that is more far-fetched. Same with the endocrine disruptors. Those were a big uh, illegitimate environmental issue that people were talking about a lot, chemicals that mimic sex hormones and have caused um, serious fertility problems and birth defects in wildlife and frogs and other animals. And then tying that to current debates about gender dysphoria in a way that sort of starts to disconnect from what scientists are saying.
1: Okay, well, let's get into that a little bit, because cherry picking arguments are taking an argument that has a kernel of truth, and then wrapping your position around it isn't really new. I mean, people have been doing this all the time to back up their positions. So how is he somehow able to get away with this and then create a wider following? I think
4: because there's just a huge amount of paranoia in in society right now, if you look at how suspicious people are about COVID vaccines, and some of that is negligence on the part of the, you know, the government didn't push the companies to test the vaccines to see if they prevented mild infection or asymptomatic infection, whether they would really cut down on infection and whether it was therefore, you know, you were actually doing society a favor by getting vaccinated. We don't know that. And so, you know, I think a lot of people are confused and disappointed about the messages and then the lack of science to back it up.
1: So does it trouble you that he is now suddenly beginning to appeal to a wider audience? Because as you explain in your column for years, he's been there, but he's been a fringe person who's stayed within his own uh, lane as an environmental lawyer. Now he's thrown his hat into a political ring. He's getting more of a following. People are now paying attention to more of what he's saying. Does that bug you?
4: Well, what bothers me is the lack of reason, the lack of, of, I wouldn't even call it nuance. I'd, I'd call it you know, using science, using evidence, using reason to look at what is a real threat, uh, and there are many, and to to just jumble it all together so that everything is a threat actually can distract from things that are serious environmental problems. So when he gets people paranoid about, I uh, you know, reasonably safe vaccines and Wi-Fi and all these other things, I think it can it can keep people from focusing on. Problems where there's evidence that we are causing harm to our kids or causing harm to the environment.
1: So then what does his appeal and his broadening appeal say about, I don't know, American society? Like, is he filling a hole where people are are, they need to hear this discourse or they need to have something to hold on to as far as a belief system? Like what 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 is he filling for us?
4: Well, it's always easier to you know to, to have an emotional reaction and to have a sort of blanket way of thinking, you know, to say, Oh, everything that industry makes is dangerous. Everything's terrible. You can't trust anybody. That's going to be easier um, to either take that view or to take a totally trusting view than to take the view that, well, something is, we do have some problems. We do have some holes in our regulatory system and we have to think very hard and carefully and to know what they are and what to do about them.
1: Historically, have we seen this before? Someone coming out who is so fringe and yet somehow getting a following? Could you compare this to anyone that we've seen in the past?
4: I think there's always been, uh, you know, there have always been people that that thought this way and that he's just sort of been a, you know, kind of a lightning rod for, for this. You know, that I think um, we've had people that have Done it like Ralph Nader has taken um, a, a cons, you know consumer consumer friendly stand in a more rational way, looking at products that really weren't safe and finding good ways to help make them safer.
1: And of course, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has his famous name. Is that a factor in his appeal as well?
4: I think it's I think it's the combination. It's kind of the perfect storm. You know, you've got the famous name, and then you've got you're coming in at a time when people are feeling distrustful and where I think this outrage factor has always been something that that uh, to be exploited. But I think he's also a very clever guy and good at um, sort of working up that kind of emotional outrage. I think that he was you know, he's a good environmental lawyer. He knows how to win a case
1: against polluters, whether the pollution is real or not. Faith Flam is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering science and host of the Follow the Science podcast. Don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. How many Diet Cokes are too many, not just to consume, but to sell? Should those makers of ultra-processed consumables have to pay for the damage they're doing to customers' health? Marin Somerset Webb asks that very question in her column on the Bloomberg Terminal. Marin is a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion and covers personal finance and investment. She's also host of the Marin Talks Money podcast. And she joins me now. Marin, let's talk a little bit about that column that you have on the Bloomberg Terminal. How would it work? How could an ESG rating or a credit help a company undo the damage that's being done by processed foods?
0: Mm. I mean, the, the first thing to say is that it's it's very clear, increasingly clear, that there is a lot of damage done by ultra-processed food in particular to the health of populations around the world. And that has an external cost, obviously, to the productivity of a country, to the health costs of a country, et cetera, to say nothing to everyone's personal well-being. So there's definitely... A cost here. And that's one of the few things that the that the increasingly vast ESG industry never really approaches. So when you look at, for example, the sustainability or ESG ratings of any kind of big food companies, they tend to be more about the sustainability of their of their supply chain, about how they use land, about how they source ingredients, etc. There's very rarely any kind of element that says, hang on a take here, let's look at the end product. This is doing an awful lot of damage, and if we're going to, if we're going to rate someone on ESG, the S is extremely important. You know, we think much more about the E than we do about the S. But is there any point to the E if we don't do the S? And one of the things I say at the end of the column is that obviously saving the planet is a wonderfully worthy aim and we should think a lot about supply chains. But if you think nothing of the health of the population on said planet, who were you saving the planet for? Mm. So this is really important. That's the, the first point that I wanted to make how it works, Uh, you know, who can possibly know there were only at the very beginning of this road. But one of the things that people have started talking about is the idea that you could have a nutri credit in the same way as you have a carbon credit, etc. So if you're doing a vast amount of of damage, you can offset that by, I don't know, contributing to the National Health Service in the UK or uh, getting your credits from a gut health education group or, or whatever it is. Much better, of course, would be for companies to simply stop making this stuff. But that's That's a rather longer journey. The first step is to recognize the problem and to recognize it through the ESG industry.
1: So are there folks out there who are recognizing this problem? Clearly, this could wind up being sort of a disincentive for the manufacturer. But there Uh are those who are seeing this, recognizing that this is a problem and that this could be a potential solution, maybe a strong word, but let's go with it. A, A potential solution.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's the beginning of it. You know, there's a, there's a group in the UK, the Investor Coalition on UK Food Policy. There's some uh, action groups in the UK. We have Share Action, which has been having a go, for example, at, at Unilever. And there was a big conference summit in, in 2021 where a lot of investors asked that the big food companies get together to develop a consensus around a nutrient profiling system, they call it, so they can use it to judge what is and what is not healthy. But then we get into this- this, this difficulty of exactly how you define healthy, because a lot of, of processed food manufacturers would say their food is perfectly healthy. And, you know, look, we might have we processed this thing to death, but hey, we added back in some vitamin D a little calcium, right. and therefore it, it meets this criteria. Whereas people, or nutritionists and doctors who look at ultra-processed food would say, it's not what you add back in, it's the way you produced it in the first place. So, you know, there there is an idea that perhaps an incredibly straightforward thing to do, which will never happen by the way, because big food is a very strong lobby, would be to take any, any products that had maybe more than five ingredients or six ingredients and therefore it's by definition heavily protested and just you know, slam a nasty warning on it saying this is what will happen to you if, if you eat this stuff too regularly, that, that kind of thing. But as I say, this is really difficult. And we have in the UK, we have a, a traffic light system where you can see a, a red, green or an amber or whatever on, on food that you buy to see if it's considered to be healthy. And an awful lot of those things that might have a green on them, you or I might pick them up and go, well, I wouldn't eat that. You know, that's not real food. It might have a green on it because it, it might have these nutrients embedded in it somehow. But it's the processing that might cause the damage. So as if this is an incredibly complicated and contentious area. It's not straightforward. Let's, uh, and that makes it obviously difficult to label. Let's, let's talk about
1: some of that contention. Uh, how much of this is our responsibility? If, if I eat a hot dog, that's my doing. Nobody made me eat it. Is it reasonable to hold the manufacturer responsible if I'm the one purchasing and consuming this product?
0: Are you really trying to drag me into a minefield here? Aren't you <laughs> Thanks for that? <laughs> That's what we um, do would, here. <laughs> <laughs> would you have asked that question of the tobacco companies? See what I mean? Oh, look at you. Huh. Now, a lot of this, a lot of this food is ultra-processed food. I have to be absolutely clear: I am not a dietitian or anything like that, or a nutritionist. But I mean, I've read a lot about this now. Um, this stuff can be very addictive. It messes with your head to a degree. It makes you hungry. You know, you can eat and be hungry again later because the correct signals haven't been sent to your brain again. I'm just repeating things that I've read. This is not my not my area. And if all these things are the case, then there is an addictive quality to these products. And 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 we know that, you know, manufacturers spend a lot of time trying to get that mouthfeel correct, right? To make you want more and more and more. Now, are we responsible for our lack of willpower here? Or are they responsible for creating something that destroys our willpower? Who pays? Do we pay with our ill health or do they pay by, as I say, some kind of system of labeling, some kind of system of nuclear credits or something that incentivizes them to just not do it anymore? Marin, where are consumers in this? Are they paying attention? Have they caught on? I believe they are paying attention. You know, I don't know if you remember a little while ago, there was uh, the World Health Association organization put out uh, something about aspartame potentially being carcinogenic, and they rode back on that later. But searches for is there aspartame in Coke Zero rose by nearly 5,000% almost immediately after that. You know, consumers are very well aware of this, but it's a very difficult thing to do to pull back on your consumption of UPF. It's tough. Where's the government in this then? What's their role? Well, anything like this probably does need a government role because one of the one of the things about ESG, and remember that when fund managers and companies are looking at ESG things, they're not necessarily thinking to themselves, how can I be better? How can I be good? How can I do the right thing? They're thinking, geez, I want to get ahead of government regulation. That's what they're thinking almost all the time when it comes to ESG. And so in order for the ultra food processing industry to clear itself up or clean itself up a little, there needs to be the fear of regulation because that's what drives improved behavior. So the government I think probably does need to step up their, at least their conversation around the kind of processed food that is available in our supermarkets and how it is sold. Now, we do have that conversation in the UK quite regularly about, you know, should there be a sugar tax? Uh, Should there be no um, buy buy two, get one free offers on processed foods? Should we make sure that that ultra processed food is not kept near checkouts, etc., etc.? We have these conversations, but we move very, very slowly, because as I say, you know, big food is is a very strong lobby group and everyone has to eat. And there is exactly the question that you asked me just now. Isn't this a matter of personal freedom? Isn't this a matter of personal choice? And in many ways, I absolutely agree with you on that. But I suppose my point is that if the ESG industry is going to exist, then this is an area that it definitely should be involved in.
1: You were making a point earlier about how to measure the healthiness of the processed food and whether it would be healthy enough and what criteria it would have to meet to be considered healthy. Have we gotten that far yet with the criteria? Is that where all of this needs to begin with a dashboard of the, the t- box that need to be ticked off to measure w- what the food should be and what, what criteria it should
0: meet? That's absolutely right. I mean, as far as I know, there may be other countries who've moved a lot further on this, but certainly globally for the ESG industry, for the, the, the people who are interested in this, there is no standardised way of knowing. And so you can look at it and you say, you know, I think about it in terms of things like, what is the shelf life? if it's more than a particular period of time, then can this possibly be good for you? What's the packaging like? Are there there, uh, plastic microparticles leaking into the food? That's another way to look at it. How many ingredients does it have? How many different processes have the ingredients gone through before uh, they've ended up on on the shelves? And then, of course, there is the the basic of what are the end nutrients inside Mm -hmm. it? But as I say, that has got to be combined with the level of processing, because the the current science, and of course science has never settled, but the current science is suggesting that it's the process, processing in itself, plus the many ingredients required to process food to give it that, that mouthfeel, to give it that longevity on the shelf, etc. Those extra ingredients that are so difficult and possibly so bad for us.
1: Maren Somerset-Webb is a senior columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, covering personal finance and investment, and host of the Maren Talks Money podcast. This is Bloomberg.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. There's a conventional wisdom that most Americans don't have enough cash to pay for a $400 emergency expense. But those numbers don't necessarily add up. Let's find out what's happening with Allison Schrager, a Bloomberg opinion columnist covering economics. Allison set us straight. The latest numbers from the Federal Reserve's survey on household well being tell you what exactly?
2: Well, they tell us that I guess 13% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency, which is higher than I think would all like it to be, but it's also not most Americans or half of Americans, which we often hear. I think because the survey tends to be very precisely worded in ways that isn't meant for our modern times. And it's, you know, it says, would you pay cash in a an emergency for $400? And uh, two thirds of people said they would, which is why I think we often say 40% of people wouldn't. Um, but everyone, all, most of the other people who wouldn't you know, have other options, either they'd borrow from family members or they'd take out, put on a credit card or things like that. So it's really only 13%. So households then are better off than in years past? Well, they're better off than they were um, when they first started asking the question, yeah. when it used to be 50%. Um, they're not as well off as they were last year because, you know, all that pandemic money is wearing down. But I mean, also, I, I a lot of people wrote this to me in the comments and in emails, and I think this is a fair point, is they've been asking this $400 question for like 12 years and have not adjusted it for inflation. Because everyone's like, what would $400 buy you in an emergency? In fact, I was going to ask you that
1: very thing. If I had a flat tire, let's mm-hmm. say I had two flat tires, then $400 cash might, cover it. And of course, an emergency room visit, forget about it. But 13% who say they cannot come up with that much money. The caveat I saw was without borrowing it. They still have Mm -hmm. credit cards or they still could somehow get it.
2: The 13% say not at all. Like it would just the end and also i never noticed this but the fed had a little side note this year uh-huh. saying well actually we say would and that's important not could but would because they pointed out that a lot of people they suspect just wouldn't want to use cash because they don't want to wear down their savings in case an even worse emergency came along so they also asked a new question of like well how much if you could only use your savings how much could you cover uh-huh and uh 87 said 500 or more So
1: then is the message getting through to people that they need to have an emergency nest egg or are we just a wealthier nation?
2: Well, I guess to some degree we are. So we are a wealthier nation. We have more savings than we did. I think people have always strived, I guess, to have as much emergency savings as they could. Um, To some degree, we're getting a little bit better at it. But I mean, When when people panic about it, I think they have to realize we've somehow muddled through. I mean, some people better than others. And, you know, things are not worse off than they used to be. So how did the conventional wisdom be that Americans don't have
1: enough cash to pay for a four hundred dollar emergency expense? How do we get there?
2: I think a combination of, say, poor wording of the question and, you know, media that likes to hype bad news. Um, (laughs) I think the marriage of those two, uh, as I said, the most recent and not so single whore out because everyone's guilty of this, too, is Kamala Harris. I think two weeks ago said half of Americans are $400 away from bankruptcy. Um, You know, and you can see how, you know, it's easy to interpret the question that way. Sixty percent of people would not spend for do not would not spend $400 cash in an emergency seems to suggest half of Americans don't have the money. So if you don't read the question very, very carefully and look at all the footnotes, I can see how people would run away with that. So
1: someone like yourself who covers economics, you read that survey, you see those results, and you come away with what idea?
2: Definitely 13% still too high. Um, We got more work to do. But you know, things aren't necessarily worse than they've ever been before. It might be a little better.
1: Allison Schrager is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering economics. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns of the Bloomberg Terminal, and we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.